0: Some bonds last a lifetime, some bonds inspire confidence, and some you grow to rely on. These are the bonds worth investing in. For nearly 50 years, PIMCO has reinvented fixed income to create opportunities for investors in every market environment. So no matter what happens, you can build the bonds that mean the most to you. PIMCO, a global leader in active fixed income. Learn more at PIMCO.com bonds. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Consult your investment professional before investing.
1: Jim Cramer, you can only get negative for so long on the same darn stories. That's my reaction to today's action where the Dow inched up five points, S&P dipped 0.31%, NASDAQ dipped 0.18%. Oh, day, until you consider that we rallied 400 Dow points from bottom to top. We've been so negative and have sold so hard this morning because of the same trio of terror that's kept us scared of stocks for weeks now. Trump, trade, and tariffs. Today we decided at between 11 and noon <laughs> and that it was enough already. Yeah, it seems almost, well, it just seems pretty, uh, let's just say, um, uh, non-rigorous that we went up for an hour for no reason, but it worked. You know what I think happened? I think people said, you know what, it's time to do some bargain hunting. It's just gotten too negative, just in case one of these negatives turns positive. Let's hit each member of the terror trio one by one. First, hate him or like him. President Trump is way too often in the news these days in ways no one on Wall Street at least wants. You don't want to have to wake up every day every morning and say, okay, let me see what the special prosecutor may be working on today. Given that Mr. Robert Mueller is way too discreet to actually leak, that's right, he has it and he won't, it's always a giant guessing game about what's going to happen. The indictments, the arrests, the documents, the phone taps, they all read real bad about everything President Trump may or may not have done. And it wears on you. It's like a steamer trunk on your back back when you come to work. It's become the ultimate bearish parlor game. So you end up yearning for last year when the president was in the paper for all sorts of things, but not for what allegedly happened with Russians or with porn stars. As an investor, you want these stories to just go away, but they're not going anywhere. You have to understand the stock market often behaves as though it's a referendum on who's in the White House, especially when the market collectively likes the guy who's in office, which we obviously did in 2017. That's why it feels like we trade on whatever piece of paper or indictment will come up next, even though in a rational world, most stock prices would have nothing to do with the president at all. In short, the president's woes make you want to pay less for stocks all stocks. The stories have become an albatross around every investor's neck, whether you love him or hate him or just don't even care. Then there are tariffs. Investors have been conditioned to believe that tariffs are always bad. They cause trade wars and trade wars are bad for business. But President Trump is not Mr. Stock Market in Chief. He's the president and the commander in chief. And he feels that many of our trading partners have been taking advantage of us for decades. You don't have to agree with him, but this is one of the key Tents that won him the election, and he was always going to deliver on these campaign promises. So now he's trying to rearrange the relationships we have with our trading partners, most of whom he doesn't think are partners at all. He sees them as being more like thieves. And because many people in old industrial towns believe world trade and globalization is the enemy, he's got a lot of support for this position in the politically important Rust Belt. That said, it's not a popular stance among investors. On this issue, President Trump, hold your ears, Mr. President, has become kind of shockingly like President Obama, who should also be holding his ears, meaning he doesn't seem to care about the stock market much at all. Now, this new attitude snuck up on investors in 2018. We've been under the impression that Trump viewed the Dow Jones Industrial Average as the equivalent of his Nielsen ratings. But once some polls started showing him becoming more popular, I mean actual polls, not polls about TV, who needs the validation of the stock market? Especially when we're hearing talk that that President Trump could get the Nobel Peace Prize if he can arrange a peace treaty in Korea. A mighty big if, but still. You heard it first by me on Squawk on the Street. My uh, colleague David Faber was incredulous. He's always incredulous. In the president's mind, well, let's say he's trying to right the wrongs of his predecessors, who he thinks were way too easy on these trading partners, either because they wanted to help impoverished workers overseas, maybe at the expense of our workers, or because they wanted to give our internationally-oriented companies, a boost by opening markets. Of course, there's another benefit to free trade that you rarely hear this administration talk about, cheap stuff. That's been a tremendous boom for Americans. The influx of low-priced merchandise of all stripes and varieties helps to keep the cost of living down. But as far as this White House is concerned, that's either here or there right now. So Trump has sent his trade delegation over to China to get us a better deal. One of three key initiatives, the other two being renegotiating of NAFTA and getting Europe to lower their tariffs on American-made cars. What a serpentine or a gauntlet. The problem is Wall Street doesn't like trade disputes, and as we've seen, this stuff freaks everyone out every time it's mentioned. Maybe we get a better deal, or maybe the negotiations spiral out of control. It's inherently uncertain. You know what? The market hates uncertainty. The third T is trade, and that's a function of what's happening with the tariffs. The main driver part of this rally at the beginning of the year was synchronized global expansion. I must have talked about this thing endlessly. Remember the numbers don't look so synchronizably hot anymore. March is looking like it was a weak month. April seems even more punk, something that we'll get our first real glimpse of when we see that non-farm uh, Labor Department report tomorrow morning at 8.30. But because trade has slowed, and slowed noticeably, particularly in Europe, the big global expansion thesis is blowing up right before our eyes. And these trade talks, if they don't work out, will just be another nail in the coffin of the world expansion theory. Remember, the president's advisors have said that some pain will have to be taken in order to right the wrongs of our previous trade, policies, and the pain stays mainly on stock markets. That's right, to twist a phrase from Kramer Faye, My Fair Lady. You want to uh, tie it all together in a nice big bow, like the bows my father used to sell? Okay. The new thesis I'm hearing is that the president's woes are making the Chinese more intransigent. They're beginning to take a longer view that Trump's in real trouble, and they can take more pain than we can and wait out the president. In other words, the Mueller investigation weakens the Trump hand, and it could actually hurt the global economy if it results in a prolonged trade war. This narrative has become so ingrained that we have come to expect every stock to go down as it's repeated and repeated and repeated. We'd like to think that the stocks of companies that have little to do with trade, would, or at least you know, to anything domestic, right? We'd think these domestic stocks would somehow be immune. But if they're in the S&P 500, they go down. You ever notice the red on the board on those big down days? There's no green. It's just all red. That's when the selling is two to one or three to one, as it was this morning. The red blankets anything that's in the S&P, because big hedge funds and small investors alike now tend to buy and sell just index funds, not individual stocks. So those stocks get tossed around like flotsam and jetsam on the high seas of the troubles of Trump tariffs and trade it's the three t's and each one is devastating to what investors will pay for any stock we call this of its origin now as negative as that storyline sounds periodically we get bargain hunters like those who came in between 11 and 12 today and basically they say enough is already enough it can't possibly be this bad i see the whites of the seller's eyes and i'm shooting look they might be right maybe there'll be no negative headlines about trump tomorrow hey crazier things have happened no. Maybe Larry Kudlow will pop out of a meeting with the Chinese with thumbs up and say there's reason to be optimistic that a deal will get done. Larry's an optimist. Maybe the PRC will decide that they have more to lose than we do. And they'll agree to shutters say half their steel mills, the ones that spew so much pollution that you wonder why they spend so much money creating make-work jobs in the steel industry. Rather than something cleaner, get their own air cleaner so you won't have a million fatalities, from dirty air as they did last year in China. Or perhaps it will just be another lousy Friday like all the rest of them as people worry about what will happen this weekend with China. And those who buy tomorrow and will buy and did buy after 12 o'clock today, well, they'll get wild, which is why the big bounce couldn't be sustained. The bottom line, if you have one takeaway from today, it should be that there comes a point where everyone is collectively too negative for that very moment. And that's when you have to take the other side of the trade. Let's go to Rich in Wisconsin, please. Rich,
2: hey Jim. First, thanks for taking my call today. We love you over here in Wisconsin.
1: Oh man, I love Wisconsin. I,
2: Green Bay's going to be healthier. I, I wish I,
1: I, I. Jordy Nelson was one of the greatest picks I've ever had. Just so you know, what's up? I agree. Second, I'm reading Get Rich Carefully for the second time. Wow, what a great book, Jim. Wow, that's a nice thing. we got some good stuff in there that still tells you about how to value some of these stocks here. I appreciate the, the nice comments.
2: Absolutely. So, Jim, with e-commerce being in a really strong secular growth trend, as evidenced by Amazon's latest quarter, and with these trends expected to remain real strong into the foreseeable future, is XPO Logistics a bigger beneficiary than FedEx or UPS? And would an acquisition of XPO by Amazon be logical, significantly okay. it- strengthened... You know, I
3: typically don't. First of all,
1: thanks for the kind comments. I typically do not recommend stocks on a takeover basis. And I'm not going to do on this one. Brad Jacobs wants to be independent. He's built a great company. When he reported his numbers, the stock did a U-turn and it started to go up again. And I think XBO Logistics from Chapel Trust had a huge hit on is a great stock, and I like it more than FedEx or UPS. Okay, there comes a point where everyone just gets too negative. And that point was reached today at 11 o'clock. And that's when you have to take the other side of the trade. I don't recommend trading on the show, but there are moments when things get too negative. Now, is it no dice when it comes to MGM resorts? The stock's been struggling mightily after earnings. I'll tell you if it's momentary weakness or a sign of things to come. Plus, does Proofpoint have a point to prove after reporting earnings? Company reported strong numbers, but the stock's still sold off. I'm getting to the bottom of the move with that, seat, with that fabulous CEO. And ahoy, mateys! Sailing for the Stockholm Norwegian Cruise Line I'm on the deck of the bliss to find
0: out Don't miss a second of Mad Money Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter Have a question? Tweet Kramer Hashtag Mad Tweets Send Jim an email to MadMoney at CNBC.com, Or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC Miss something? head to madmoney.cndc.com.
1: What do you do when a company you really like sees its stock just get mauled? For the past two years, I've consistently recommended MGM Resorts, the chain of casinos with properties in Las Vegas, the Bellagio, Mandalay Bay, the Luxor, the MGM Grand, and the Mirage, among others, as well as in Macau, the Chinese gambling haven, and a number of regional casinos scattered over the United States. I started pushing the stock as a turnaround play after we spoke to Jim Murin. Knew him from when I was at my old hedge fund. He used to be an analyst. He's now a fantastic CEO there, and that was roughly two years ago. When he called the bottom in Macau, told us about the benefits of spinning off the company's real estate as MGM growth properties. Ever since, this has become my favorite play on the domestic gambling market, also the most surefire. If you want exposure to Macau, which is much faster growth, both Las Vegas Sands and Wynn have a lot more. But if you're worried about American companies doing business in China, as I become, that might not be your cup of tea. Now, MGM was trading in the low 20s two years ago when I got behind it. And it rallied all the way up to $38 in early January when the market peaked. Even as of last Wednesday, it was at $35, meaning you are up more than 58% if you listened to that interview with Jim Muro two years ago where I pounded the table. But then MGM reported a week ago, and even though the company beat the estimates handily, its stock sold off anyway. It plummeted at 8.6% last Thursday. That's extraordinary for this stock. It doesn't trade like that. And then it lost another 3% on friday wow while it bounced on monday it got clobbered again yesterday to the point where it's now a 31 dollars stock basically trading at levels we haven't seen since early november of last year just weeks after the horrific mass shooting at one of mgm's las vegas properties in short the selling year has been extreme whenever we see this kind of action we need to ask ourselves are we looking at a broken company here which means sell 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 or is it really a broken stock which means hmm, maybe buy. In other words, is this the kind of development that makes you want to sell MGM for good, or are we merely getting a viable pullback in a stock that still has a compelling long-term story, even though the short-term story is clearly opaque at this point? Let's take a look. For two years, MGM worked its way slowly but steadily higher. The final leg of its mammoth multi-year rally came at the very end of January, right after Steve Wynn, the CEO of Wynn Resorts, was accused of some disturbing uh, behavior, a lot of sexual misconduct allegations. Remember this because it's going to be important in the narrative about to give you. The problem is, the whole market peaked at the end of January. MGM promptly started getting slammed, along with every, every other stock. They were all trading in lockstep. When the company reported in February, it stock bounced a bit, but that quarter contained one thing that put some investors off. MGM's margin guidance was surprisingly light, which management planned on a tough citywide convention comparison in Las Vegas, along with continued disruption at the Monte Carlo. For the next couple of months, the stock meandered sideways in the mid-30s. By early April, we started hearing that MGM was looking into buying either Wynn Resorts, as that stock had been pulverized without Steve Wynn at the helm. While he may be a flawed human being, he was always a great businessman. Or maybe they just wanted to buy Wynn's Boston Harbor Casino project, which looks pretty darn good. When the chatter was all about all of Wynn Resorts being bought, MGM stock got hit. When we heard that it was just about the Boston Harbor project, growing it bounced a bit. Makes sense acquiring all of Wynn would be a real headache and an expensive one, whereas simply snapping up another marquee regional property from a motivated seller would be a lot more straightforward, kind of like the Washington, D.C. property, although, you know, there would still be some difficulties. By last Wednesday, MGM has settled in at 35 and change. That, since then, the stock has been hit so hard that it's lost 11% of its value, so we've got to ask what went wrong here. Okay, MGM delivered better than expected earnings, okay, a $0.03 cent beat off the $0.31 cent basis, and its revenue was a bit higher than expected. So far, so good, driven by strength. And at the company's Vegas properties. We like that. However, MGM's revenue per available room, and that is, as I tell you in Get Rich Carefully, the all-important key metric in the lodging industry, declined by 4.3%, declined. And while this was at the high end of the company's previous guidance, it still represented a real weak spot. But the thing that really caused the stock to get blown to pieces was the guidance. Specifically, Las Vegas revenue per available room guidance. Management warned investors that they expect continued disruption at the Monte Carlo and the Mandalay Bay, the casino where that horrific mass shooting took place, and it's going to take more time to recover. On top of that, they had a major prize fight cancellation this month. This is the uh, Canelo Alvarez versus Triple G fight that got shut down when Canelo tested positive for steroids and blamed the test results on tainted Mexican meat. True story. Put it all together and MGM only look at it for a 1% to 3% increase in Las Vegas strip revenue per available room this quarter. That's not so great. The company also talked about additional margin compression in Vegas. That's why the stock got clobbered. Investors were hoping for much better. So what do we do here now? What do we do with the stock of MGM? I have a very simple test with these kinds of situations. You need to ask yourself, is the long-term story intact? Clearly, the short-term is not intact is the long-term attack. When it comes to MGM, I think the bull thesis still works, at least long-term. While the company may have a tough time this qu- this quarter, okay, this quarter, if you listen to the rest of CEO Jim Muren's forward commentary, remember, he's been money in the bank, you'd know that the second half of the year is looking very, very good with convention attendance in Las Vegas expected to be on the rise, which translates into more people staying in MGM's properties and spending more money there. And it's not just Vegas that's improving. MGM's National Harbor property outside Washington, D.C. is already a big success. It grew at an 8.4% clip last quarter. The company got a casino under construction in Springfield, Massachusetts that should open in August. And MGM only just uh, opened their new Macau property, the MGM Cotai, in February. That project had been costing a fortune. Now they can finally reap the, the rewards. Oh, and Macau accelerating dramatically last month with total gaming revenues up 27%. I like that. I still think win in Las Vegas hands are better bets if you want something closer to a pure play on Macau. But it sure doesn't hurt MGM that this business is doing even better. Oh, and let's not forget that the Supreme Court is currently mulling its decision on whether to allow sports gambling outside of Las Vegas. The general expectation is that the Supremes will decide in favor of allowing states to get it in on all the sports gambling bonanza. If that happens, MGM will be the big winner because they have the most regional exposure with the locations in New Jersey, Maryland, Michigan, Mississippi, and soon Massachusetts. Or let me put it another way. After the recent declines, this stock is selling at just 17 times next year's earnings estimates. But I think MGM is dealing with a little short-term dislocation. It's got a bunch of long-term catalysts that could potentially make the stock a lot more attractive. I think it's a buy here, as the risk award is very much in your favor. But look, if you don't like the lack of short-term visibility here, maybe you should swap into the stock of Norwegian Cruise Lines, which we'll hear from later in the show. A very exciting story that sells much more cheaply on a price-to-earnings ratio than that of MGM. Although down here, I got to tell you, MGM stock, I think, is really cheap versus where it is historically traded. And that matters tremendously to me. The bottom line, despite the hideous pullback in its share price, I think MGM Resorts is a broken stock, not a broken company. I don't blame anyone who wants to take profits here after MGM's monster multi-year run. But long term, I say you got to buy this one. That's what you do with the broken stocks of very good companies. Joseph, in my home state of New Jersey, Joseph.
0: Yes. Hello, Kramer. Yeah. Thanks for all your great advice, and I really enjoy watching your show.
1: Oh, thanks, man. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, I've owned uh, Vector Group uh, for about
2: 2 years now on your recommendation. Mm-hmm. And with Philip Morris uh,
0: missing with earnings, should I sell it? I was uh thinking about holding it because well, a, a large portion of the company owns real estate. Right, now, real estate, but
1: you know, we actually got you know we did a piece the other day about uh about Philip Morris and, and Jewel uh the uh, new way that people smoke. And I've got to tell you, uh, even though Altria had a decent quarter and that should impact Vector Group, um, I think that that 8% yield is terrific, but it may not protect you against what looks to be a very dying smoking industry. All right, a broken stock is not a broken company. It's something I teach. I'm talking about it at my boot camp on Saturday. This is really important. A broken stock is not a broken company. MGM is the former. So for the long term, consider buying much more mad money yet. Meet me on the Lido deck, Craymerica. I'm giving you a firsthand look at the newest ship to set sail with Norwegian cruise lines. You're not going to want to miss the bliss. Then, it's a critical new reality for the digital age. Companies and governments must spend a ton of money to protect themselves from hack attacks fitly by email. I'm eyeing Proofpoint to see if its latest decline could be a buying opportunity. And it was Elon Musk's best conference call ever. Or was it? I'm breaking it down. Stick with How unforgiving is this market? Yesterday morning, Norwegian Cruise Line Holdings reported what certainly looked like a good quarter. The company posted a six cent earnings speed off a 54 cent basis, higher than expected revenue, up 12.4 percent year over year and really robust guidance. And what happens? Well, after opening strong yesterday, jumping 53 to 55, the stock quickly gives up all those gains for going into the red and closing down more than 3 percent. To me, this seems kind of crazy, especially since Norwegian is hosting its annual investor day tomorrow when its newest ship, the Bliss, which we visited today with Frank Del Rio, the CEO of Norwegian Cruise Line Holdings, and I think it's gonna be one upbeat meeting. Take a look. Frank, we're on the Bliss. I need you to do two things for me. One, give me the bargain proposition for riding on the Bliss, and then give me the bargain proposition for owning your stock. Let's do the
3: stock first. Okay. Uh, It's because ships like Bliss. We have 26 incredible vessels across three brands, we lead the industry in the highest yields, the highest EBITDA per capacity day. Just reported record Q1 earnings, guided higher. Um, the stock is ridiculously low. Um, and what can you do it? about that? Uh, my job is to keep uh, churning out higher and higher profits. Right. You know, right. I, uh, I've managed the business for the long term. Um, we've set out specific goals. We're going to delever down to the low threes. Right. We're going to start returning capital to shareholders. Um, we're going to have uh, double-digit uh, uh, year-over-year earnings-per-share growth. Uh, that's what a CEO is supposed to do, introduce innovative products like this. And I think over time, the uh, markets, will be- markets will become rational again, and uh, the stock market will go up. I think a lot
1: of people believe that there must be an oversupply of ships. When yeah. I, thank you for giving me the tour beforehand. When I look at this, I don't think you can churn these out as if they're widgets. Absolutely not. And look, the occupancy of these vessels, on
3: average, 110%. We are supply challenged, Jim. I only have 26 vessels. There are at least a dozen unserved or underserved markets that I can roll off the tip of my lips that tell you that I need more vessels. And we do have more vessels coming, on average, one per year through 2025. So we're going to be growing. We're the fastest-growing cruise line of the major three right. uh, publicly traded companies, and have the youngest fleet. So, um, even though you're the oldest, you're 50-year-old company. Yeah. Well, that's um, over time. You you, rena- you refresh your fleet. Right. So, and we've been doing that. So yeah, we have the youngest fleet across three award-winning brands. We've got a, a product with just about everybody.
1: Well, one of the things that uh, again, I'm trying to get the objections out there because you know I think your stock's cheap. I've said it many times. Yeah. I had it all last year, the year before, it's just been really, really good. People say, well, wait a second, the Caribbean is saturated. Can't you just switch to Alaska? Can't you switch to Europe? There are people who want to to be on a cruise ship all over the world. And we do. The ships are movable,
3: right? They have propellers. They have rudders. And depending on seasonality, we move them to wherever uh, you can command the highest prices. So we're agnostic as to where the ships uh, sail to. We sail to wherever we get the highest prices. And we're we're now almost in summer. It's early May. You're going to see a shift beginning uh, to take place from the Caribbean to Alaska to Europe, um, because as you know, half the profits of this industry are earned in the third quarter. Right. Why? Third quarter is all about Alaska, right. all about Europe, high price, high yielding destinations. Well, Frank,
1: it, it, what is this? again? What intrigues me here? Is that you actually know how well you're going to do. You've got, I mean, you were kind yeah. enough to show me uh, an exclusive area of the bliss that I've got to tell you, you almost, you have to pry me away from. It's so gorgeous. But you've already sold it out for all, at right. least for the year, right? That's a great point, Jim. And that's another
3: data point right. that uh, investors should take a, uh, to take note of. The visibility that we have in this business is seven, eight months out. That's how far our way we're And yet we're the sold. hotels sell at 16, 17 times earnings. You sell it 11 times earnings. So yeah. I'm trying to understand. Crazy. The,
1: yes, the I, bar- yes. And the
3: barriers to entry. Anybody can buy a piece of land and build a hotel. Right. You know how long it would take if you and I wanted to start a new cruise line today and get our first ship? Six, seven years. So the barriers to entry are great. You need a lot of capital. Um, the order book at the major shipyards, it's all taken. Supply growth is limited. So the analysts, the investors are all wound up because uh, over the next two or three years, the supply growth is going to spike to 6, 6.5% six from an average of 5% over the last 10 years. you got to be kidding. Uh, the order be book can tell you that doesn't matter. Bunker fuel, an issue? Um, an irritant. It, okay. An irritant. It's about uh, 6% of our total revenue. Um, we want it to be lower, of course, but it's, a, but it's a commodity, and you plan accordingly. We have a very aggressive hedge program in place, so we're, we're good with
1: fuel. How many people uh, on staff or on a ship like the bus? About 1,800. Uh, reasonable or hard to get people to work on a, on a ship? Hard to get Americans, to get Americans.
0: Um,
3: but not international crew. Our, our crew comes from over 60 countries. Um, they love working on board Norwegian. We have one of the highest retentions, if not the highest retention rates. We treat people like people and uh, it shows in the way they treat our guests. It's, um, to use an old adage from the hotel industry, it's ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. It's worked out well. Shocking things on the Bliss that nobody expects? Well, what did you think about it when you saw it? Not not your grandfather's cruise ship, No, and I've been
1: to Alaska, and it was freezing cold. What I wouldn't do to be able to see uh, you actually told me the word for when those glaciers fall down yeah. while calving. I'm swimming. Yeah. Calving. Calving. And I just think that yeah. calving well, is something that well, I want look to do here. Look at this aqua here.
3: park behind us, right. incredible. Two pools, four jacuzzis, two different slides, and behind it, the world's longest racetrack at sea. There's only two, and they're both on our ships, Norwegian Joy out of Shanghai, right. but this one's even larger. We're gonna go up there in a little, in a little bit, okay. and you and I are gonna race around a thousand-foot-long racetrack, <laughs> double-decker, eight, la- uh, eight turns, at speeds of up to 35
1: miles an hour. You told me your pricing, and frankly, uh, cruising as I know from my daughter is an incredible bargain. Yeah. Why can't you charge more? We do year after year.
3: You, you know, we have the highest yield in the industry by a wide margin, Jim. Okay. But you know the basic business model of the cruise industry is you must have every single cabin full on every sailing because the opportunity cost of an empty cabin is not a couple of hours like the airline industry with another you know landing and takeoff it's seven days or ten days until your next cruise so we continue to market and revenue manage our product first you fill then you maximize pricing, and I think we're, we're the best in the industry at doing that.
1: What do you know about your customers? How are you leveraging the incredible big data that you must have to figure out what to do per person?
3: Yeah, uh, it's a very good question. We, we have big data, not just for the Norwegian brand, for all uh, three of our brands. Each marketplace is different. Millennials are taking over the Norwegian brand, for example. They're the largest uh, demographic cohort in the country. And talk
1: to me about that because yeah. I think this is interesting because there's still a perception. I know you and I have spoken about this, that it's an old person's thing. Yeah. I've always tried to figure out why my 23 year old loves it so much. And the
3: answer is, she's not alone. No, uh, but, but look, uh, the boomers are still alive and well. 10,000 of them retire every day in this country, Jim. And so I've got a brand for them. It's called Oceana Cruises and Region 7 Seas Cruises. Completely different product, but for millennials, for families, for multi generation, um, Norwegian is the cruise line to be. Do you think millennials have found out that it's great for Instagram or millennials have found out that it's a lot cheaper than going to another to a hotel on land? I think it's both. I mean, uh, one of the things that millennials favor most and seek is value. Right. They're not millionaires they're yet. Frugal. They're frugal. They're getting there. Right. And along the way, they still want to have fun. Millennials have the highest index of propensity to travel more than a generation X or the Boomers, um, they're great customers. they love yeah. to the see Experiential.
1: Things. I want to thank you, Frank Del Rio's, President and CEO of Norwegian Cruise Lines. Thank you for your hospitality. Thank you, my friend. And this ship is beautiful. You're welcome back anytime. You know my new theme on the show. This market is getting increasingly difficult to satisfy. I want you to consider the case of Proofpoint. It's a cloud-based cybersecurity company that you know I've liked for ages. Last week, Proofpoint reported a phenomenal $0.15 earnings beat. Yes, $0.15 earnings beat off a $0.15 basis. Sales came in higher than expected, up a whopping 40% year over year. Management raised their full year guidance pretty much across the board. However, because the forecast for next quarter was somewhat in line and the full year forecast was only raised a little, not a lot, investors turned on the stock and it quickly lost 5% of its value. i got to wonder, doesn't a high quality company like this deserve a little more benefit of the doubt considering the growth that we've got here? Let's take a closer look with Gary Steele, CEO of Proofpoint, find out more about the quarter and where his company's headed. Mr. Steele, welcome back to Man Money. Hey, Good, to Good, you, Gary, to Good to Thank see you. Good to see you. Thank you. All right, Gary, I'm going right to it. Page six of your coverage call. Uh, Your CFO says, as a reminder, given the many moving parts associated with this bug, considering the new acquisition activity provided, guys, all I'm saying is is that when your CFO says there's a lot of moving parts, I think people misunderstand. But isn't what matters the incredible demand for your product and the cash flow?
2: That's right. I think we're focused on the right thing, which is great growth with great cash flow. And I think that balance has been well received by investors, and we think that that focus will deliver tremendous value. When I looked at the uh, big wins. And you're talking about, because of confidentiality, of course, you're not going to say, but you want a
1: 92,000 user portion, a Fortune 500 healthcare company, 60,000 won. Then you got another Fortune 500, 21,000 for your privacy. These are gigantic
2: wins for your company. No, they're big, important strategic wins. And, you know, we focus on the global 2000. These are companies that have real issues and we're helping them solve those cybersecurity problems.
1: But doesn't everyone have real issues if you're talking about 80% of the companies have been hit?
2: Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. If you actually look at the stats, we just published what we call the Human Factor Report that documents a lot of these stats. But over 80 percent of organizations surveyed had experienced an email fraud attack. This is pervasive. It's a problem. And as a result of that, it's one of the reasons we're growing the, the rate we are.
1: Last time I saw you, had just bought Wombat, which I That's know right. teaches people, also makes it so you can test without having to have another company be the blue team and the red team. Yeah. Are people attracted to that?
2: We've seen tremendous demand in a very short period of time. We've only owned it now for two months, but people are raising their hands. They want this capability. And I think they recognize that because users are being attacked, mm-hmm. they want to raise the awareness of their users.
1: Now, you put together a consortium, uh, Palo Alto Networks, which you know we love. We have them all the time. Mm-hmm. Good stock yesterday, too, in a down tape. CyberArk, Imperva, we know them, and Splunk, one of our Cloud King favorites. Now, this uh, cobbled together has actually become the team that people want in the business.
2: Yeah, we recognize early that this ecosystem of vendors is critical that we integrate so that when customers buy our products, it all works better together. And we're not putting it back on the customer to figure out how to wire all these things independently. But if
1: they hire you, do you suggest that they take the suite, which would include Splunk, say, and Palo Alto? You know,
2: we obviously are very friendly to those partners, and we try to refer them in.
1: You're a nice man, but you poked the bear. One of the first things you said is, what's the long-term catalyst? The shift to Microsoft Office 365. If I'm Satya Nadella, CEO of Microsoft, I read that and I say, you know what? They do, they're not even a billion-dollar company. I'm going to put them down. I am going to come up with something better than Proofpoint. Don't you risk that when you go right after them like that?
2: I think the reality is today with this broad shift to the cloud, with the broad shift to Office 365, it's been a tremendous catalyst for our business. And while, while Microsoft does have a set of capabilities, people are looking for the best, and that's what we offer.
1: Okay, now let's, let's talk about uh, what I'm, I'm trying to figure out in terms of the the billings as being yep. more important then this is something I always go through with this. this, People say billings versus the the, uh, revenue growth Mm -hmm. rate. And I thought the billings were extraordinary, but the analysts didn't seem to understand how good the billings were. Can you just walk us through and tell us why that's so important?
2: Yeah, so billings are obviously a precursor to revenue. And what is important about our billings is our short duration of contracts. So because we have a great renewal rate and we don't want to offer discounts for Mm -hmm. longer-term contracts, we've driven duration down. And so we saw the lowest duration um, ever in this last quarter. So we think that is a great feature for shareholders. And
1: could you tell our viewers exactly what they shouldn't be doing with their email and what you have to train whole organizations not to do?
2: Oh, it's very simple. You know, you have to be thoughtful about what you click on. You have to be thoughtful about what documents you open. Because great. 80% of malicious messages have ransomware or some form of uh, banking trojan. It's just incredible. It's crazy.
1: Well, you've got the greatest demand of any product I know, which is why we've been consistently that. behind your stock. I think it was wrong that it was down. That's Gary Steele, CEO of Proofpoint. I'm going to reiterate, it was wrong that it was down. It's just hard to understand. Mad Money's back here today. It is time. It's over the lightning round. Round one, one seventy-seven fourth And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, King? Daddy, time for the lightning round. We're we'll going to start with Dave in New York. Dave. Hi, Jim. A big booyah from Rochester, New York. I uh, love your show. My stock is BX. Blackstone Group. Okay. I'm Blackstone Group has got to a, it, 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 it. This is run by Steve Schwartzman. It's giving you a bunch of distributions. Can't look at the stock price ah, and see how much buy, they really buy. return to you. I think it's a terrific buy. Let's go to Bill in New York. Bill.
0: Hi, Jim. Thank you for taking my call. You're I'd welcome. appreciate your thoughts on Xilinx.
1: You know what? I thought the last quarter is really good. The stock jumped up and then it came right back down. I have to tell you that I think you have to start thinking back and getting all that. We've had that cryptocurrency taken out. Nvidia. Ah. My, my, my. Finally, I feel it's been bit of derisk. Low cash in Georgia. Low cash. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. I'm long time listener, first time caller.
2: Um, I'm thinking to take a position in Selgin. It has taken a lot of beating in the past. Look, if you want
1: to do that by Amgen, that's another beaten down one that has a giant buyback or Regeneron, which actually had a pretty decent quarter, but nobody cares because I think Celgene overpaid for an acquisition from a couple years ago and it's still hurting them. Regeneron had a good quarter and it's going straight down. But that said, I don't even like the group. Leonard in New York. Leonard. Booyah, Jim from Booyah. Bayside, New York. Okay, man. What's up? I'd uh, like your thoughts on
2: Alexis.
1: Oh, another one of these. Okay, it's a development stage of uh, uh, biotech, and they're not working right now, so I'm not going to say, other than for total spec, should you buy it. How about Joaquin in Florida? Joaquin!
0: Booyah, Kramer. Yeah. You know, my guy introduced me to your show with the lighter Rob,
1: and now guess who's on air. Oh, okay. Ha! Huh. Uh, I have volatility is driving me crazy. When I buy, it goes down. When I sell, it goes up. I
3: have a good one next week with MoneyGram.
1: No man, that, it's not a high quality. It's not a high quality enough stock. Honestly, in this market, you got to have quality if you want to do payments and processing. There's so many other better stocks right now. So we're gonna stay away. John in Texas, John. Hey, Jim. Booya from John in Dallas. Oh, man, Dallas. Okay, well, you know, who knows? Maybe improved this year, maybe not. Good luck to Witten, though. How can I help?
3: Okay, okay yeah. Uh, first, thank you for everything you do for us uh, retail you. investors. Okay? Yeah, and, and my, my, my uh, share is, uh, uh stock is MNST.
1: You know what? I, I mean, think MNST, which I had been a huge fan of for a long time, seems to have run out of gas. I'm not going to put my uh, two thumbs up anymore. I'm going this way. Don't buy. Don't James buy. of California. James. How are you doing? Pretty good, James. How are you? I'm living in sunny Wallet Creek. Looking forward to your good advice
0: about a stock called SXCP, long-term and short for my IRA. I no longer like these stocks.
1: Dividend. I don't like them. That 10%, I am telling you, that 10% yield on Suncoke has now come in to be a red flag situation. You're not going to get me to go there. And in Virginia, and... <laughs> Thank you, thank you, Mr. Kramer. Because of your advice, your show, your books, your looks, I've more than doubled my retirement account. I think I'll take the looks. Go ahead. Okay, seeking uh,
3: diversification, I'm considering buying a toy stock, and I wonder what you thought about
0: Mattel.
1: The only way that I would tell you to buy Mattel is if I thought that Hasbro was going to buy it, but I can't recommend a stock on a takeover basis when the fundamentals aren't that good. Mattel is inexpensive, but so is Hasbro, and Hasbro is higher quality and has not had four CEOs in the last few years. Linda in New Jersey. Linda.
0: Booyah, well, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Oh, you quite well. What are your thoughts on waste management, buy, sell or hold?
1: You know, Jim Fish was on recently and I had uh we had sold this stock because of uh, for my Chapel Trust. Why? Because of this uh of the issue of the Chinese no longer taking the waste paper, but it's a really high quality stock, so I'm not gonna go against it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round
0: is sponsored by TD Ameritrade.
1: All right, let me get this straight. People are finally, they're finally fed up with Elon Musk and his insistence on giving us an alternative set of facts. Finally. I mean, this was the straw that broke the camel's back, his boorish behavior on Tesla's conference call last night. Are you kidding me? Last night was was absolutely, hands down, Musk's best conference call ever by far. I know that sounds crazy. When I said I would have done the exact same thing as Musk this morning on Squawk on the Street, my partner, David Faber, was incredulous. He wondered if I was being sarcastic. No. Why did I like this so much? Because he, Musk said a couple of things that really kind of clarify the situation to me, the kinds of things that many CEOs wish they could say, but never actually do because they think they have to play by the rules. Now, listening to a Musk conference call is a little like listening to an old-fashioned record album. There are some hit songs intermixed mixed with some losers you just have to slog through, which is why it's such a shame that the best comments were the last ones, the ones that really get to the heart of the ridiculous investment practices we've developed in the late stage of capitalism that we're in. So many stocks, for example, are dominated by the whims of hedge fund managers whipping around for a quick buck. Every CEO knows this, but most won't say it. Not Elon. Listen to this, gem.
0: We have no interest in satisfying uh, the desires of day traders. I couldn't care less. Please sell our stock and don't buy it. I am not here to convince you to buy our stock.
1: Bravo! So many CEOs have to deal with these predators, these buzzards. Who can blame Musk for telling them to get the heck out of his prized equity that he has built? And that's a huge stake in. Tesla stock is unnerving, not for the faint of heart. I sure don't like it. And I think people don't understand the risks that are associated with it and how emotional it can be. That's why I was so thrilled that Elon actually broke through the truth barrier again. Get this
0: admonition. People are concerned about volatility. They should definitely not buy our stock. I am not here to convince you to buy our stock. Um, Do not buy it if volatility is scary. There you go.
1: Don't buy our stock. Now you're talking, partner. He's laying it out and blocking away. If only all executives were this honest. there's no gun to your head to buy the stock of Tesla. And if you can't handle it for heaven's sake, get out and dodge. Because this is the Wild West for certain. When it comes to Tesla, the bears love to harp on about how much Musk needs to own up to the fact that he has to raise more money and needs to do a financing. <sighs> I'm Well, anyway, this undercurrent was many of the questions, many and many. But it was Bernstein's research analyst, Tony Saginaw, who point blank asked about, once again, the cost of the production of the batteries in the Model 3 and what it means for the capital requirements. Musk, correctly... Thought the question was boring and not cool. Do you know how many other CEOs want to tell the sec guy off just like that? Yeah, I mean, he's a total downer on every conference call I'm on. Worse than Morgan Stanley's Dara Mosenian on the consumer packaged goods calls. Even more damning than Steve Tusa, JP Morgan's industrial analyst. I say, nice shutdown at Tony, Elon. Believe me, most tech analysts secretly applauded Musk on that ride post. Now, tons of people seem freaked out about the interchange Musk had with analysts before. In a fit of peak, he broke off from the analyst community call to speak to an aptly aptly named fellow Galileo, (laughs) whatever the heck that was, on YouTube. But it was my absolute favorite moment. You see, RBC's Joseph Spack wanted to know about Model 3 reservations, whether they were holding up, I believe, after the impact of that fatal collision involving the car's autonomous autopilot feature. Now, Musk could have just said, Hey, we got even more reservations than ever. I mean, that would be usually his usual uh, totally unverifiable style. Instead, he simply said, we're going to go to YouTube. Sorry, these questions are so dry, they're killing me. They were killing me too. Man, I was bored. And it was the second go around, I almost had to grab myself a tequila. Now, all I can say is, if you really think you're going to get a straight answer to that question from Elon Musk, then you know what? You're on a permanent intellectual vacation. Now, I think it's time for us to suspend conference calls altogether and just have a big Warren Buffett style Berkshire Hathaway love fest, like the one thrown in Omaha this very weekend. I say, close that gigafactory, just bring in the adoring public, and then be interviewed by Bill and Joe, the car guys. Why not? At least it would be a lot less boring and perhaps even more informative to those intrepid souls who still want to own this darn stock. Otherwise, thank you, Milan, for telling the truth. If you can't handle the heat of owning the most heavily shorted equity in the land, then get out of the kitchen or the gigafactory or whatever. After all, the man only wants to hear congratulations and thank yous on his call. Don't bother asking anything else if you're an analyst because you are in his alternative security world. Just plain out of line. Hey, And if you like the car, buy the car, but not the stock. Because who the heck really knows the truth about what's happening there? You sure aren't going to hear it from this guy. He's selling cars, not stock. And don't you ever forget it. Stick with Craven. You know, the turn in the market was interesting today because it really was that people just got way too negative. But usual warning here. Fridays have been bad days because people expect the Chinese to come out and say something negative over the weekend. Like I said, there's always a bull market, so my promise i would find it just for you right here Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you
0: tomorrow.